Test, test. Meh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? I have a lovely voice and I know it. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Stargazers, a discussion on identity and representation in Stargate. You are listening to episode one, the 1994 Stargate movie, Orientalism and Transphobia. And that sums it up pretty well. So that was our podcast. Thank you for listening. For those of you who need a little reminder what the movie was about, 8000 BC, a bunch of people in quote-unquote North Africa get abducted by an alien posing as the Egyptian sun god Ra. In the 1990s, scientist Dr. Daniel Jackson joins the Air Force, and with his help, they decode the Stargate, figuring out how to use it as a portal to a different planet. Daniel joins a team of soldiers, led by Colonel Jack O'Neill, portrayed by Kurt Russell, on an expedition to this planet. There they find the ancestors of the people abducted 10,000 years ago and free them from their oppressor, the alien Ra. Who in the end of the movie is blown to bits by a bomb. With a threat being blown to pieces and newfound friends on this distant planet, the soldiers return home, leaving Daniel Jackson behind, who joins his newly found wife and love of his life. Well, that did not sound sarcastic whatsoever. <laughs> Lils, I know you made some notes on the movie, and I'm curious to hear what you thought. Uh, thanks, but before I do that, I'd like to introduce my point of view, because I think it's important to portray where I'm coming from and where I might be lacking in perception due to that. So, I am Lils, I am non-binary, and I use a gender-neutral non-derogatory pronoun of your choice. If you have no other idea, I would suggest they them. And I come from a middle class background. I am perceived as white, which I think is important to display here because the movie deals with some racist issues and orientalist cliches. And I do not want to pretend I am the main voice that's supposed to be heard here. I study social and political sciences and philosophy, so I have a little bit of a conceptual and theoretical background. However, my research for this podcast is somewhat limited due to I like time. We will link some sources that I used, but please do not expect me to have a full-blown paper-worthy research behind this. That said, I would argue I have more experience and competence here than the average layman. Hello everyone out there. I am Punkfish. Uh, most people call me Punk because it's short and neat and my pronouns are he and they. I am queer myself and while people can seem to decide how to label my ethnicity, I am part of an ethnic minority and do have experience with uh, racism firsthand. But now that this is dealt with, back to the movie. What did you think? Going into this, I knew you had strong opinions about this movie. And while I didn't know which directions that would take, I was not surprised to find it have some issues. I must admit I was shocked about the extent of some of what I found. First things first, let's, let's start with something at least kind of mildly fine and funny about this movie. I... Recall that I said in the trailer I expected some Star Trek relational stuff, by which I meant drama. I also meant medium to shit production value. And when I saw the menu of the movie, I felt very much positive about that. <laughs> it, 
it looks ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that was a throwback through time. Yes, definitely. And that is actually something I kind of liked about the movie. It made me nostalgic, although I never saw it. The tech is so cute. It's adorable. However, unfortunately, going back in time also has its disadvantages, which is already shown in the first scene where we see the ancient human civilization being abducted by aliens. Yeah. Um, first thing we noticed, people are abducted in northern Africa, which is very unprecise. <laughs> okay, those air quotes you okay, just made. I know. <laughs> in northern Africa, in air quotes, because that's what the subtitles of the movie said. That's the location we are given, which feels kind of imprecise. I do not think that this is the kind of uh, geographical precision we would have gotten were we confronted with Northern American or European civilizations at that point. Though I'm a bit curious, 8000 BC, uh, that's before there were any countries formed. What is a phrasing you would have preferred? You could use phrasings referring to countries nowadays. You could say it's a geographical region nowadays called Dul. And you don't even have to use country names for that. You can refer to deserts or mountains or seas. So there are plenty of options which would be less overtly generalized. That's a great point. Another alternative would be, I think, to not use the location, but talk about the people we were visiting, because we do have names for groups of peoples that have lived in that era. Yes, especially given that we are supposed to interpret the people as ancient Egyptians, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. Considering the plot of the movie being focused on aliens who are inspired by ancient Egyptian gods. Another thing I noticed in that scene is that the people we do see on screen are all perceived as light-skinned. Yeah, that's a bit ridiculous, especially considering when we meet their ancestors on the distant planet, the cast generally consists of people of color. These folks shown 10,000 years ago, they really are remarkably light-skinned. And that is actually where I would argue that we have a first confrontation with an Orientalist and racist stereotype, which is that victimhood is constructed as a thing typically occurring to fair-skinned people. There are interesting, we're, we're going to link that in the descriptions, um, there are interesting points about victimhood being portrayed in media in general and not even just in fictional media, but for example in news, focusing mostly on people perceived as white and female. So that is definitely, in my opinion, a first important point suggesting the perspective of the movie. It feels like there hasn't been done lots of reflection when it comes to issues like this. That said, one thing I actually liked about this movie is that it's not one of those films that abruptly decides any and everyone we ever encounter fluently speaks English. Quite the contrary, when we're at a grave digging site... Yes. 1920s. Yes, in the 1920s, fast forward, we're at a grave digging site and I think people speak Arabic, but I have no idea about languages, so I may be wrong. I'm ashamed to admit that I don't know the language the working people in that scene are speaking, uh, but the professor and his daughter both speak Norwegian, oh. suggesting that's where they are from. 
Editing punk here. Hi. Uh, I checked and the working people do indeed speak Arabic. Yes. So that was something I positively noticed. However, the scene switches again and we're pulled forward in time to Dr. Daniel Jackson yeah. giving a presentation on his subject of study. Everything I say sounds like a question. That's horrifying. He is speaking on his theory that the ancient pyramids were not built by the Egyptians, but that they are of alien origin. This is another typical Orientalist phenomenon. The denial of cultural accomplishments, which are considered, air quotes, non-Western. This time it's the pyramids. Uh, so this is another interesting aspect, in my opinion. There has to have been an active decision to put in Northern Africa as the descriptor of where people were abducted 8000 BC. But then, given that the pyramids are the landing sites for alien starships, there would have been a fairly easy way to be more precise about where people were abducted. Okay, uh, I think I'll um, explain a part of the plot that was a bit ill-explained in the movie. The aliens landed on Earth and enslaved some of the people. They were not all immediately abducted. They've been on Earth for quite a while, forming basically what is to be now the Egyptian culture, ancient Egyptian culture, which is, like, not better. More like worse. Yeah, and then after quite some time, the people from Earth rebelled and um, shut down the Stargate by, by knocking it over. By that point, Ra had already... Formed a colony on his old planet. On a different planet where his slaves were to mine for the mineral he needs. Yeah, the externalization of imperialism will definitely be a chapter in this episode. There are other problems, in my opinion, with the depiction of Jackson as a scientist. One part of that is that we're experiencing a classic construction of rationality and scientific method as a Western phenomenon. We will not encounter any scientific personnel that is either perceived as a person of color, as non-Christian, non-US American or non-European. Or non-cis or queer in any other way, but that's a different topic. Yes. We actually do get a woman who's working in the scientific department and she is perceived as overweight. So a big person exists, but yeah, she's also definitely perceived as white. And I think she has like one line and then is never to be seen again. The scientific cast, in my opinion, is a form of othering in itself because it is lacking diversity. And another problem is that usually we have a dichotomy of people being affected versus people who are able to analyze a phenomenon. For those of us not studying social issues, uh, would you explain what othering is? Othering is a phenomenon in which some individuals or group are defined and labeled as not fitting within the norms of a social group. So the idea here basically is to put distance in between different groups of people. And in this movie, we will encounter quite strong forms of othering. And we will have, I would argue, two main groups and a villain, which is its whole own can of worms. 
Okay, so my understanding of this, using this example, would be that the the idea of scientific work and research is to be associated with Christian, American, European people and not with the other group. Exactly. And I don't even believe that is an intentional characteristic of the movie, but the way the movie works and the way it chose its cast. Systematized knowledge and science is to be perceived as the characteristic of only one of those groups, the majority of which is perceived as white, US American or European and influenced by the Age of Enlightenment and Christianity. Okay, I think I can work with that. Thank you. You're very welcome. That said, he generally is a nerd cliche as well. <laughs> I, I'm a bit torn on this one because it's so cliched and it's obviously more than a bit problematic. On the other hand, it's just really funny. I did say in my note, he is a nerd cliche, but in a cute way. Um, and he does break some of those stereotypes. For example, he's not easily frightened. I do think he does feel fear. We have a comparably emotional character here, I would argue. But he also has the classic curiosity of a scientist, which I can respect and accept. I do believe that's the only way you can explore concepts deeply. You need to be very interested. And we do get an example of that lack of fear, both in interaction with foreign individuals because uncertainty is a generally a thing that makes humans or can make humans fearful uh, and in my opinion the way better example there is an encounter with a foreign animal on the planet <laughs> i love that one and i have some fun facts on that for you later on oh i am so glad to talk about that animal because it's kind of cute and kind of gross to be honest but yeah he seems very chill given that it's kind of huge And he immediately tries to make friendly contact and is rewarded for that. But yeah, so I would argue the nerd cliche, it is there, but it is not problematic to an extent that I cannot live with it. Now that we are on this topic, uh, this, this is our first episode and we don't really have a structure yet. So I'm going to just ask you right now. I do have some trivia prepared for you to learn later on. Should I just keep all the trivia and make a new section for that? Or do you want me to pepper in some fun facts along the way when we are at the scenes relevant for them? All right. You just talked about those weird animals Daniel Jackson met on the, on the foreign planet. Do you have any idea how they might have made those animals? When I watched the movie, I was pretty certain it was a form of practical effect. So You're not entirely I, wrong. I don't even know whether I'm using that term right, to be fair. The animal licks Jackson at some point. And I think that might have been like a costume. Worn by whom? Some dude, I guess. Not quite. They are horses wearing costumes. And uh, the huge humps on the back of the animal is an actor hiding underneath the costume. And there's a mechanical mask on front of the horse's face and the rider of the horse has a mechanism to control the tongue and face of the animal. That's completely hilarious and actually a really smart idea. It's so clever. It gets even funnier than that. 
They were filming in the desert of Yuma in Arizona, and they were on real sand. But that meant that the horses under the costumes obviously couldn't gallop. There's this one scene where Daniel gets caught up in a rope that's part of the riding harness, and the mastich just runs off and carries Daniel with him. Was that an accident? No, no. The horses couldn't run on the sand. So they used a dog, made a smaller costume for that one, and had a little puppet in the form of Daniel Jackson that was, <laughs> that was dragged along the desert. Okay, that is genius and lovely. And now I got to think for a second, isn't there for American movies always this, there were no animals harmed in the process of making this movie? I didn't see that in Stargate. So <laughs> I don't want to be, yeah, well, I want to be the dude who always brings up the justice issues. Um, that would intrigue me. Did that label not exist in the 90s? Editing Punk here. Hi. I have since learned that No Animals Were Harmed is a program of the organization American Humane. They were founded in 1877 and did indeed monitor the making of the 1994 Stargate movie, requiring the horses to not be in their costumes for more than three hours at a time and be cooled down with water regularly. At this point, I feel the need to also mention that, sadly, the label No Animals Were Harmed has to be taken with a grain of salt in any case. This is a trigger warning for animal harm. If you do not want to hear about it, please skip the next 35 seconds. According to Gary Baum in his article Animals Were Harmed in The Hollywood Reporter, the AHA credited multiple productions that caused animals to repeatedly be physically hurt or put in the risk of death. American Humane says about the Hobbit movies they, quote, monitored all the significant animal action, no animals were harmed during such action, end quote, thus avoiding responsibility for the death of 27 animals, including sheep and goats, that died from dehydration, exhaustion, or from drowning in the water-filled gullies during filming hiatus when they were housed and trained at an unmonitored New Zealand farm. The link to the article will be in the description. Now back to the podcast. We've just talked about the construction of science as a distinctively, air quotes, Western phenomenon. And I think my next notes refer to Daniel giving a short presentation on his scientific discoveries. By now, he has teamed up with the little girl we met on the archaeological site in the 1920s. Oh, you're talking about uh, Catherine Langford, the archaeologist's daughter, who is by now an older lady. Exactly. And her role is so important, I totally forgot her name. <laughs> At this point, we've also been introduced to a colonel, whose name I've also forgotten, who has an important role, but in my notes, I've always called him douched, so I'm very sorry, but we're going with that. <laughs> Colonel Jack O'Neill, portrayed by Kurt Russell. You should remember this name. I will try to remember it. I will probably call him douche most of the time. He really had a terrible haircut. Um, one part of this I actually liked was that we do not get wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. But we do actually get somewhat scientific talk, if you want to call it that. He is basically giving a two-minute introduction into vector calculus, which is somewhat hilarious, but it's not complete bullshit. So I enjoyed that. Gotta admit, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, was it that thing uh, where he used the cliche to explain how wormholes work? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the vector calculus or the 
three-dimensional graph, that was technically a correct thing. So I liked that. I also liked him shit-talking the other scientist. That was very joyful for me. Um, that scene is about a translation the other scientist made. And Jackson calls it out on being false because that scientist translated one hieroglyph, and I quote, stairways to heaven, which Jackson pointed out as inaccurate. He goes on by translating it as Stargate. And I think Punk wants to share his opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I love that scene because of some linguistic context. First off, the first criticism Daniel Jackson gives is that they called those symbols hieroglyphs whereas he thought they were either hieratic or cuneiform. Oops! I honestly have no idea what the distinction of those... Are all of those writing systems? Yes. Yes. Uh, hieratic is an ancient Egyptian cursive writing form, and that's typically written in ink, because, you know, chiseling cursive, hella work. Fair. <laughs> cuneiform might be the oldest known writing form we are aware of. It was originally developed to write the Sumerian language in southern Mesopotamia. That's modern-day Iraq. There is a likelihood that what later became the Egyptian hieroglyphs have been invented under the influence of cuneiform. That's according to Jeffrey Sampson. He's a professor of natural language computing in the Department of Informatics at the University of Sussex. The funny thing is that the hieroglyphics and that is what they are, Daniel Jackson is translating, are not actually ancient Egyptian. They are most probably Middle Egyptian, which was used around 2000 to 1350 BC. I find it very interesting that they actually chose to use actual hieroglyphs, but then did not adapt them to the period of time they wanted to represent. Yeah, that's something I don't really get as well. But I do applaud them for having put relatively a lot of effort in there. So they had this linguist on set. Let me look up what his name was. Well, having a linguist on set definitely explains some more of the later quite apt work mm -hmm. around language barriers, etc. Ah, here we go. His name was Stuart Tyson Smith, and he was a research associate at the Institute of Archaeology at the Fowler Museum of Cultural History. The tabloid, I have something on that here. So the translation Daniel gave of the tabloid was fairly accurate, actually. And they did go through the effort of putting the hieroglyphs in a form they might have been used in with very, very few discrepancies. There's a really cool YouTube video by Editology Lessons. I will link that one in the doobly-doo. And he is translating the hieroglyphs step by step and explaining what part of this would be historically probable and uh, what would be more unlikely or unusual. Yeah, I definitely really liked that scene. I would give the annotation as constructive critics that I would have liked if the movie had pointed out that specifically the translation the other scientist gives, Stairway to Heaven, has a somewhat biblical connotation and that's why it can be considered as culturally inadequate. That is something Jackson does not point out specifically. He just says it's not the most precise translation one could make. To quote Daniel Jackson, he said, must have used but, I don't know why they keep reprinting his books. Which is, for those who know the topic, hilarious. Because 
E.A. Wellesbach was a Victorian English Egyptologist, if you want to call him that. Oh, no, that is actually something Orientalism, a book by Edward Said, talks about, like, that era's way of, air quotes, analyzing foreign <laughs> cultures in a very scientific way. Sorry. No, no, you're absolutely right. Butcher's translations and other works are, even if respected by some as some of the first works in Edmontology are generally not used anymore because they are extremely inaccurate. Budge criticizes a lot of ancient Egyptian concepts of magic without realizing whatsoever that all his criticisms could be used basically word by word against Christianity. And he was a firm Christian believer. There were parts in his works where he... Haven't I written this down? Apparently I haven't written this down. Um where he uh, assumed Moses to have been a person that has existed as described in the Bible and just views the Christian God as a given and at the same time making ridicule of any other cultures and religions he encountered in his quote-unquote studies. So using his translation and landing on a Christian phrase is not even that absurd, but that's not something any viewer without that context would have noticed. Exactly. And you deliberately put research into this movie and I doubt any other viewer would do that. So I would have wished for a more explicit acknowledgement of what exactly is part of the problem of this translation. But yeah, that is a great side fact. And to me, it is quite interesting that the makers of the movie put that much effort in such a peculiar detail when you consider what orientalist issues this movie itself displays. Yeah, that's a really fascinating contrast and I think is a good example for not only orientalism but general isms that were so deeply rooted in our society and still are that even if people put some effort into making something very inclusive, most of the time they still had massive issues in different places. Exactly. Intentions are not the only thing that defines the outcome, which is not saying that effort is not valued and appreciated, but it is not enough to make the results good. That's absolutely fair. We were just talking about the language and I want to make one last note on that. For the nerds out there, I already talked about the YouTube video about the Stargate movie Hieroglyphs and the translation. There is a really great video by Native Lang about how we reconstruct language, specifically this one dealing with ancient Egyptian sounds. And it's always interesting to see how we can, based on the knowledge we have now, reconstruct now extinct languages and have an idea how things might have sounded that are not spoken anymore. Obviously, I will link that one in the description as well. Excellent. Um, continuing with the movie... Fast forward to uh, the activation of the Stargate. I found an interesting parallel of depicting stereotypes, perhaps unintentionally, in my notes. So, I noticed there are two women roles at this point. <laughs> Obviously, we're in a gender binary, but those are the 90s, so bear with me, my fellow NBs. <laughs> Big surprise there. Exactly. And... Both of them are part of the scientific team. We have the young girl who is now rich and, as I have understood herself, a middle-aged archaeologist. 
Catherine Langford? Yes. She was a little girl in the 20s and this movie is playing in the 90s, making her uh, more than 70 years old. Is that She what definitely you... doesn't look 70 years old in the movie. <laughs> She's like 40, I swear. Come on, mate. <laughs> The actress was born in 1920, uh, making her 74 at the production Intense. of the movie. Wow. She looked younger, I swear. Uh, but yeah, she herself is part of the scientific team, no? Yes. So we have two women in the scientific team, one being an archaeologist herself, the other one being barely mentioned. She has a one-liner. The entire scientific team is perceived as white as we have already pointed out. And well, there we have two interesting stereotypes. So we do have zero women on the military team and we have zero people perceived as being of color in the scientific team, pointing out more prejudiced positions the movie accidentally enhances. Women are not perceived as physically strong, therefore not apt for the military. Whereas people constructed as being of color are not perceived as rational and westernized enough to be part of the scientific discussion. I want to take that opportunity to point out that uh, we explicitly don't want to say the producers of the movie wanted to depict non-white people as uh, not being able to be scientific or anything like that. Or women as not being existent. <laughs> we do not believe the producers of the movie intentionally made those choices to enhance the stereotypes that are depicted in this movie. We believe those are accidental choices which are caused by societal upbringings and prejudices subconsciously ingrained. Some of them might not even have been choices, but be purely incidental. Thing is, they do display stereotypes existing in our social hive mind and they actually explicitly criticize those what i want to get at is that we want to point out all of these points uh, even if they are not by design because even newer and more modern movies make those same mistakes and we need to work on more inclusivity and representation in all media and pointing out all the ways that these things can be harmful is one way to hopefully work on that issue in future media I would like to add that as this podcast is also a piece of media, we would strongly encourage you to point out to us if we make similar mistakes. I do believe that neither of us has the intention to amplify stereotypes and reinforce prejudices. That doesn't mean we do not hold them subconsciously due to upbringing and context. So if you ever find something of that regard to be worth of critique, please feel free and encouraged to talk to us in the comment with kindness and respect. We value discussion and we value being corrected. Yes, absolutely. Please always feel free to criticize us if you find anything regarding those topics or anything else, considering this is the first time we are doing anything like this. If you don't want to do that publicly in a comment section or if you don't listen to this on YouTube, we have a website with a contact form where you can reach out to us. And also I will link to our email addresses in the descriptions so you can reach out to us privately if you prefer that.
we are doing our best with this, but obviously we are not free from fault. Exactly. That said, I'm just going to continue. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, please. Great. Uh, back to the production value of the movie. I really enjoyed the wormhole part because it looks so trashy. Forgive me, internet, but it kind of reminded me of the start of the Star Wars movies when all those stars are supposed to flash around you quickly as uh, the text is being depicted to give you some context. That looked very funny in my opinion. And after that scene, we land in the desert of our foreign planet. At the other end of the Stargate, we experience our first, in my opinion, um, critical depiction of the military in this movie because we are met with core dynamics mainly considering the issue of bullying the scientist. Oh, okay. Now I see where you're getting at. Exactly. And I do like that toxic power dynamics are pointed out and that douchebag colonel is not depicted as an exception in this particular context. However, I must add that this is notes I inserted during watching the movie. And my opinion on the depiction of the military will change. In this scene, we witness internal struggles of the military. We see soldiers being mean to our protagonist, the scientist. What we do not see is soldiers interacting with the people living in the spaces they are supposed to, in this case, explore. Yeah, it's an exploration mission. Yes, I don't like that phrase. Recon mission. <laughs> <laughs> That phrase in itself is kind of problematic, but we're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> Civilians at the designation are not discussed when it comes to the question of problematic power dynamics in the military. And I do not like that because that makes it look like it's a sole problem for the military itself, which should just be solved in the military itself. And I would disagree with that. That is a problem that concerns the entire population which is in contact with the military, be it of the same country as the military is or not. And that is something that is just not reflected at this point in the movie. And in my opinion, that only gets worse throughout the movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. It's interesting to hear you talk about your perception of the military in this movie. And I'd like you to remember this part specifically. Because for the most part, I I can say this now, I prefer the TV show over the movie in almost every aspect. With one maybe minor exception. The movie was produced mostly financially independent from the military. That is not at all true for the series. What the fuck? <laughs> Are you telling me that this is getting worse because we called this episode, Imperialism and Transphobia. No, Lils, it's called Orientalism and Transphobia. Good effort, though. I like yours, too. Now, why do we call it that? For a reason. Oh, yeah. Stargate SG-1 is an overtly pro-military show wow. with a significant amount of real military involvement. It was what? essentially sponsored by the US military. What? Wait, when did that air? Uh, 1997. Are we in a major American war? U.S. led war against Iraq in 1991. 
Yeah, that's six years before the show. That's definitely research for another time. Back to the movie. We are now on our way to the quote-unquote ancient Egyptian civilization. We are on our way. But beforehand, <laughs> I would like to point out that it is kind of interesting with which the landscape we are confronted on this very, very foreign planet. Because we could have chosen to have some, I don't know, classically Norwegian mountains, or we could have shot this in the Arctic. We could have made a lot of landscape choices. The movie is shot in a desert. And we are supposed to see similarities between the current natural landscape and the land 8000 BC where people were abducted. I consider that an interesting choice for I wonder about the necessity of that for the alien abductors and the civilization itself. And I would argue that this also has othering connotations. It's a foreign planet, so the nature has to be foreign. What could be more foreign? Okay, I get you now. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I know what you're getting at. Yes, and that counts for both the landscape as it does for the cultural symbols. I have to point out again, those notes were made while I watched the movie. So I'm going to figure out later while foreign alien cultural symbols do resemble ancient Egyptian cultural symbols so much. Another interesting thing I'd like to point out is that Jackson calls their landing site a replica of Gizi. And I pointed out at this particular point of the movie, how do you know Gizi ain't the replica? I am uncomfortable with how correct I am with this assessment. Well, basically, uh, what we are learning here is that neither is a replica, but both are, in the same way... Not originally human. <laughs> yeah, and they serve the same purpose, being landing constructions for the alien spaceships. Exactly. So I think this is problematic in multiple ways. We have a sacred object being constructed as some mere mundane landing site. It's like taking your average graveyard and being like, yeah, that's for helicopters to just get their ass down there. And I do think that, it, me personally, it gives me sacrilege vibes. Again, we're confronted with the idea that creations of not as Western constructed cultures are not accepted as their own and not for their grandeur. Constructing achievements as alien has two problematic connotations. One of them is that you took a world wonder and you made it fundamentally other. So you took something that is perceived as a great effort and capability and made it something inhuman and strange and at the same time bad and not their own. You're taking away an act of creation and therefore your narrative has disempowering connotations. At this point, we also find out that uh, one of the rare people in the US military who is perceived as a person of color is literally called Brown. Yeah, Lieutenant Brown is, I think, 
the only obviously person of color in, in the military depicted here. And boy, did I cringe when I heard that name. I mean, obviously, there can be people of color named Brown. But choosing that as the only name, yeah, weird vibes. Having one person in that team that is perceived as a person of color and giving that person the name Brown, it does seem odd. Yeah, they're kind of reducing him to that characteristic. Like, it's shifting the focus on that. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's weird. And now we finally arrive at the point where we meet the human civilization on our foreign planet. The first thing I noticed about the city was that it was somewhat frozen in time. Yeah, it really did look like the people living there didn't have as much development as the people on Earth. Exactly. And I do think that is an interesting aspect, and I would argue that has elements of Orientalist stereotypes as well. I would argue part of the explanation could be they suffered from tyranny and therefore did not have equal developmental chances as many other regions and populations. But that, in my opinion, is not a sufficient explanation for the gap in between our group of scientists and military and the civilization we meet here. Because on Earth, we have many people who have suffered from tyranny and there are still architectural and technological advances made, which here are lacking. So that does cover for a small part of the explanation. But I do think the bigger part of the explanation is again a form of othering and perceiving cultures that are not constructed as Western, as somewhat behind and frozen in time. Would you mind explaining to us what you mean when you use the word Orientalism? Orientalism, ever since the publication of Edward Said's equally named book in 1978, refers to a general patronizing Western attitude towards Middle Eastern, Asian and North African societies. In Said's analysis, the West essentializes these societies as static and underdeveloped, thereby fabricating a view of Oriental culture that can be studied, depicted and reproduced in the service of imperial power. Orientalism in Said's book is at the same time a political phenomenon, a phenomenon of epistemology. Oh God, I cannot say that. <laughs> Only if you can explain it. A theory of how to acquire knowledge. Orientalism is a phenomenon that is part of political discourse and scientific discourse, but also societal discourse. The Orientalist perspective strongly separates human societies in a we-they dichotomy. We referring from the Orientalist perspective to the as educated and rational and analytic constructed European or US American person whose opposite pretty much is everyone not constructed as Western and therefore lacks rationality and civility and capability for progress. Okay, I think I got that. All right. And that is why I would criticize the depiction of the society abducted by aliens. What we see here are cultural markers classically not associated with cultures constructed as Western, and there is a lack of developmental progress depicted if you consider that 10,000 years have passed. Yeah, that's fair. That said, 
there are some aspects of intercultural communication the movie depicts I actually like. One example is the first time the expedition group encounters the people on the planet. And I think it's the military douche. O'Neill? Is it O'Neill? Yes. And O'Neill puts out his hand. I think it's O'Neill. And the other people are completely confused. Handshakes are not a culturally invariant form of saying hello. There is no culturally invariant form of saying hello. And the movie points that out in a very good way, in my opinion, because it shows both that there are misunderstandings or that they can occur and that they do not have to be a massive problem. But yeah, I liked that there are this form of tumbling stones in interaction. I really liked the communication between the military group and the people they encountered. They managed to display a way of learning language that I experienced myself. When you are amongst people you don't understand at all and try to communicate using your hands and your feet and communicating by just copying what the other people do and, and trying to find a common understanding. And they really managed to do that without making this mimicking seem ridiculous. There is no ridiculing the not knowing of a common language and they handled the efforts of communication really gracefully. Yes, exactly. I think one important aspect of the mimicry not seeming weird or inappropriate is that, in my opinion, the actors convey very well that this is not just pure mimicry. It's not purely, I am doing the exact same thing that you do, but you can, in my opinion, see very clearly that they are at the same time trying to gather a meaning behind the action. So you have a twofold interaction here, which is just the mimicry of body language and gestures. And on the other hand, you have at the same time the slower mental process of what exactly does that mean and the tweaking of meaning in this. Another element of the film I really appreciate is the absolute lack of subtitles for the language that people on the foreign planet are using. Many movies these days subtitle everything that is not in English so that the audience can follow along. But the expedition group does not understand the people they encounter. And because of the lack of translation, the audience can feel with them. And they trust the audience not to get bored by this lack of understanding. And we get to learn about these people with mainly Daniel Dixon and the others as well. Yes, very much so. I really like that we as an audience also experience the communicational gap. That is a very interesting feeling and it felt very relatable to me as well. Um, another thing I enjoyed was that there were immediate mutual adjustments in communication. The leader of the people on the planet does awkwardly shake the hand of O'Neill, I think. Kasuf? Hmm? Wait, I'll show you a picture. This one. Yeah. Yeah, Kasuf. Kasuf does awkwardly shake O'Neill's hand and Jackson bows and thanks also kind of awkwardly at being given, I think it was water, and then he returned food. Jackson gave them his chocolate bar. Yes, exactly. And that is something in the movie I, I'm going to fast forward now for a second because there is... One time where I do not think the movie made the greatest choice of communication. Jackson was so quick at picking up communicational cues. I really liked that. 
And he does continue to do that throughout the movie. But when O'Neill hands over his chocolate bar, Kasuf answers something. And in that moment, it sure sounded like that was either a gesture of thanks or a gesture of, oh, this tastes good. And as Jackson heard that and repeated that in the prior scene, I was kind of surprised he didn't do that here, but instead imitated an animal he couldn't even be sure that guy had ever seen. Bok, 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 bok. Exactly. <laughs> I hated that scene. Oh my God, he wants to communicate that uh, the meat he's eating tastes like chicken and at this point we don't know whether this planet has chicken so that's kind of a weird move in fact they likely don't exactly that is i mean what are the odds really <laughs> yeah that's fair though i would say that is an exception to the way the movie handles language in general I really like the effort they put into the language the people from this planet are speaking i completely agree I already told you about Stuart Tyson Smith, the archaeologist who worked on set, and he reconstructed what ancient Egyptian might have sounded like if it had developed over thousands of years, starting from what we know about ancient Egyptian. In fact, he didn't only construct this language based on, by the way, very real developmental patterns. The actors learned that constructed language. Jay Davidson, who portrayed Ra, had some difficulties, but Eric Avari, who you referred to before, who is Kasuf, the leader of the small town, he spoke a couple of languages before and got into this one very quickly. Apparently, Davidson and Avari actually talked in this new ancient Egyptian language on set. That is such an impressive achievement of the actors. Like, for real, that is crazy. Learning a language for a role, I'm sorry. I am so impressed by that. That is amazing. Learning a language that was constructed for this movie and learning it in a way that they could actually converse. Truly love the dedication on that one. We are going to a very interesting occurrence in the movie and I did not like it at all. Kasuf spots Jackson's necklace, which carries the symbol of Ra. The Eye of Ra, yes. Jackson receives a ritual washing, or what I interpreted as a ritual washing. That is quite an interesting reaction, in my opinion. Like, I expected the symbol of Ra to be perceived as something holy. I did not know where we were going with the villain at that point. This entire spiel ends with... Jackson being brought to a house and then being presented with a young, comparably light-skinned, perceived woman. Shauri. Yes, enter Shauri. And I have some things to say about the construction of cultural variants in this film because that annoyed the shit out of me. So we are self-aware enough to have a movie which actually concedes no Handshakes are not culturally invariant, but obviously gender stereotypes, traditional gender roles, the question of how marriage works and the like are depicted as somewhat similar across planets. Shauri is given to Jackson kind of like a gift. We do have, again, a patriarchal hegemony and economy of exchange in which women are perceived as goods. 
I think the statement the movie made is that that is a behavior pattern that was already existing in the culture of the people before they were abducted from Earth. But yeah, there are strong points to be made that that might have well changed over the 10,000 years that have passed. Exactly. And it would have been more interesting to see a family or gender construct that's different from what we are seeing here. Or construct of sexuality. I must say I do not know enough about ancient Egyptian culture to make any statement on this. But for example, in ancient Greece, it was very much common, especially for educators of all sorts, to copulate not with women only, but with young boys. I mean, harsh talk here, but to immediately run forward with heteronormativity in this case really gave me a very uncomfortable vibe. I think that didn't stick out to me as much because we are so used to still see that in very modern movies. The heteronormativity in general is something that is rarely challenged in modern media. I'm not saying that's making it less problematic. I'm saying that's why I didn't notice it right away. I would argue that Orientalism is a similarly prominent feature in modern media. And I would say the sexism of this particular scene and Chaguri's role in general struck me so strongly because it worked very much along westernized constructs of womanhood. I didn't mean I didn't perceive the sexism. I said I didn't notice the heteronormativity as something unusual in this moment. The sexism was very much obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I can see that. It, it struck me both. How did you get here from the eye of Ra Jackson is wearing? Uh, I kind of lost you following that train yeah, of thought. Yeah, that's because actually that scene is kind of confusing. Because what happens basically is Kasu sees the eye of Ra. Then Jackson is escorted towards a house to be given a washing. And then the women who do the washing, also women, very interesting... <laughs> Yes, I mean, the sexism in this movie is very interesting because women are either not depicted at all, which is the majority of the cases, but if they are, it's only in the classic, well, domestic field, to be honest. Especially when depicted on the planet, women are only seen in nurturing and domestic roles. Yes, we do not have any deviation from that. On Earth, we at least have a one-liner scientist. <laughs> <laughs> and Catherine. And Catherine, who's a five-liner scientist, so yay. So even there, we see developmental discrepancies. And that is highly problematic, obviously. Now we get to another hot topic, and that's going to be the villain of the movie. I am sure you have some points to make about him. Yeah. Actually, this section in my notes is called The False Gods. So, we have an entire religious background being constructed as evil in this case. And I did talk to Punk about this after the movie, that I do think this kind of arc is savable and can have its values. You must know I'm generally a huge fan of gods as antagonists. I think that's great. I think gods are horrible. The problem is if you only focus 
on one specific cultural iteration of what godly beings are. So in this case, we have ancient Egyptian gods being constructed as evil aliens. That is, again, a form of making a as non-Western constructed culture seem both unnatural, because alien, and hostile, because this is our villain. To me, that also had a bitter aftertaste if you consider that Christianity has a history of pursuing other believers for praying to the false gods because their god is the only one seen as right and bright and shiny and great. Uh, yeah, we did talk about this. And I would like to ask you the question here. You said that you could think of a way for the show to redeem itself regarding this topic. What could the show do, in your opinion, to make this less horrible? I think the easiest way to fix this is by having various religious incarnations depicted by aliens. I would be super interested into alien Jesus, really. I would love that. And we could make that, for example, we, we could villainize him. We could make them the epiphany of an individualized, narcissist, self-obsessed idiot who wants to be seen as the great big savior of it all. That is an option. He could, for example, invade current Earth, saying he will fix global warming if we all pray to him, and then start another inquisition and there are people who believe him and follow him and are misled. We could even make part of humanity a villain too, and especially a part of humanity who tends to have a villainous position pretending to be a savior anyways, if you get my drift. And I do think Another part of the solution would be to actually have both positive and negative extraterrestrial iterations of religious and cultural symbolisms in general. So for Christianity, for example, as a counterbalance to Jesus, you could have some nice little archangels from his planet who, I don't know, try to get him to stop colonizing the universe or something. And the same thing could be done for the ancient Egyptian gods. It's actually way easier if a religion has multiple gods to give it a nuanced picture of good and bad than to do it with a monotheist religion, although, for example, Christianity has the Trinity and there usually are some iterations of prophets or similar important figurines that you could utilize to have both good and bad iterations. Do you get my drift? Is this too long? I'm really sorry. No, no, no. no uh, I, I think uh, I could follow what you were getting at. Obviously, I am not going to tell you how this show is going to tackle religion as a topic in the future. Yeah, I'm going to tell you my guesses. Yeah. Oh, I, I would love to hear them. And actually, if uh, there's anybody among you listeners who has not seen the show yet, I would love to hear your takes and your theories about what might happen or might be shown in future episodes. As for the ones who have seen the show already, on our Discord server, there will be a channel Lils Cannot Read. And This is pitched to me right now, and <laughs> I am offended. And you're free to write about spoilers on there. But it's really important to me that they can't be spoiled by accident. And there will be a spoiler-free channel as well. This is exclusionary. <laughs>
<laughs> no, it's absolutely fair. I'm such a curious person. I don't want access to that. I would definitely abuse it. You can join the Discord server for free in the link down below, but the Stargazers exclusive channels will be behind a paywall of one euro per month. You can gain access to that by becoming a Patreon, also linked down below. While I would hugely appreciate that, obviously it's not necessary, and I would love to talk to any of you in the free Discord as well. Excellent. Now that that's out of the way, back to our gods. <laughs> you talk about money? <laughs> yeah, not in this case, although I mean the incarnation of capitalism as an evil alien would be hilarious. Oh, I like that. On the subjects of the depiction of ancient Egyptian gods. I think the movie shows an undercomplex depiction of polytheism. I dubbed this the Jesus syndrome because it's a tendency Orientalists already had in like the 1800s. Said writes about it in the context of how Orientalists talked about Muhammad in context of Islam. They were giving him a similar position as Jesus has in Christian belief. And that is a false copy-paste of Western individualism. Of course, we're not talking about Islam right now, but the phenomenon that occurs here is fairly similar. We have Ra, which is our supervillain, and he is depicted as this one and only force. He has soldiers, but he does not have others who lead with him. Of course, Ra was one of the most important ancient Egyptian gods, and he had a fairly superior position, but this is not comparable to monotheism. And given that all other soldiers are not given a name and are not very precisely constructed along the lines of other Egyptian gods or goddesses, in my opinion, this is part of what I call the Jesus syndrome. We have a singularity that actually is not part of this system of deity. We have a very individualist villain, which is a characteristic narrative of rich imperial countries, if you're being honest. That is not culturally invariant. And not only does that appear to be not perceived as culturally invariant in the movie because of um, Kasuf. We do not, we have one leader figure, but we do not see democratic processes or any form of councils in the village. And neither do we see any power play in between the gods displayed. You're absolutely right. The um, culture we get to meet on this foreign planet is depicted as patriarchal, which is, again, a typical stereotype that quote-unquote Western people have of quote-unquote non-Western people, absolutely ignoring that most of Western culture is very patriarchal as well. Exactly. That is also something the movie totally does not reflect, but I do not feel like... Well, that is not true. Never mind. I, f <laughs> I, I do feel like the role of Fashauri is supposed to criticize patriarchal structures in a way because the scientist is so confused and uncomfortable with this situation and he's like, uh, now we're married, this is weird. And then they, of course, fall in love for real. And yeah, exactly. The movie does not reflect at all on its own 
patriarchal <laughs> yes implications it's horrible uh, yeah exactly uh, Shauri is given to Daniel as a gift basically and being used as an object to be given away by the patriarch and only is considered to have domestic skills in the end which is quite interesting because again we barely encounter any women in this movie whatsoever And Daniel is the good white boy who is shocked by the objectification of the woman. And would never take advantage of her. I mean, we really have a scene where she is offering herself for sexual services and he refuses. And I do firmly believe that this is part of the hero arc. This is not a you're a basic common decency kind of person. This is actually supposed to make us feel like he's a true gentleman. We had a bit of a conversation on the false gods right now. We did not technically meet Ra yet at this point. We jumped a little. There still are some other questions, but I do think we can skip on that. There is the smoking scene with O'Neill. Oh, I like that scene. And I would like to talk about that. Yeah, sure. Because I do think that this scene has some nice aspects. One of them is that here there is mutual friendliness and learning. Skara is given a cigarette by O'Neill and there is a mutual learning process. Skara learns how to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> and yeah, then it's the 90s. Yeah, and then he's very disgusted by the cigarette and throws it away. And actually, O'Neill takes that opportunity to learn something and throws his cigarette away as well. We do not know whether he quit smoking there. <laughs> Probably not. But yeah, we have a teachable moment here. And I liked that. I also liked the mutual giving of gifts. And the general respect O'Neill and Skawa show for each other. In that moment, yeah. I'd argue that those two are very respectful towards each other throughout the whole movie. That is interesting because I want to talk about the disadvantages of that scene as well. Because Skara takes the gun of O'Neill. And there... We have its very own problematic depiction of power relations and the handling of communication. This scene is very ambivalent, in my opinion. Context for the movie. We didn't talk about this when we recapped it. O'Neill lost his son because the boy uh, shot himself with O'Neill's gun. And O'Neill has a relationship to Skara similar to a relationship a father might have to a boy. I actually do not think that this will interfere with my point in any way, because I would argue that is to an extent an infantilization of Skara. I would say that the guns are already established as a dangerous item at this point, because they were taken out at the sandstorm. And people were afraid of them already. So Skara knows that this can do some harm. Yet O'Neill treats him somewhat like an unknowing child. And yes, that can be explained from an individual perspective. But then again, we are only regarding this scene and interaction from the Western constructed point. And I do think that's problematic. And... I would also add that there are, in my opinion, unintended implications of this scene in the interaction of imperially acting cultures and others. Because O'Neill is very 
friendly and giving and encouraging, just up to the point where we are confronted with the real question of, in political science, we would argue, realist means of power, meaning weapons. I would say that O'Neill is not keeping the gun away from Skara because he wouldn't like to see Skara empowered by the weapon but because he wants to protect him from himself and his use of the weapon, that's still some kind of infantilization? Yes, infantilization. I do see that by that he still infantilizes Skara. Punk and I oftentimes have these points in discussion. I'm not saying this is not justified in some other way by the story. I'm yeah. saying the story is problematically constructed if it leads to this situation. Yeah, that's fair. All right, last thing to O'Neill. I feel like this movie in general has like 2.5 characters with character development. And one of them is Jackson, one of them is O'Neill. And I think we talked about Skara having somewhat of a developmental act. Does Jackson have actual character development? He has a story. I don't think he changes a lot. I would argue that learning new forms of interaction and languages does change you as a person but that change is not shown okay so we okay so the only person who has character development literally is o'neill yeah interesting um that makes this even more problematic when i first noticed that he is getting a developmental arc I was positively surprised because we are supposed to dislike him in the beginning of the movie. And I like when we do not get a monolithic experience of a character with antagonist potential. Interestingly, I would say there is another character with development, but not as you would expect. Kowalski has some development in his character, but... He's another of the military guys. And, and that's uh, literally the same development, just with less attention. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That is, that is interesting to notice, because we have multiple problematic issues here. We have, again, the frozen in time othered culture, because people don't change that. Mm -hmm. Would you say there is a development in Kasuf when he changes his mind towards the revolution? I would argue that both Kasuf and Skara have that developmental arc. In both of them, it is induced by the white savior Jackson. Oh Yeah, sure. But there is a change in Kasuf. And I'd argue that Skara does not have a change there because he's very willing to rebel from the start. He doesn't really have to be convinced, whereas Kasuf has an opposing view in the beginning. I think there's a difference in between passively being willing to revolt and actively initiating it. And Ska'ar does take the weapons from the military camp. He is not given them. That is actually something I like. He empowers himself. And I would argue that in itself is a form of development. It is not nearly as deep as that of O'Neill. That is very annoying. And O'Neill basically is the only real person in this entire thing. Well, I would say that Jackson is a real person, but he doesn't have a development throughout the movie. Yeah, okay, I can see it. Jackson, to me, at the same time, is too much of a trope. He is a caricature. But, I mean, you can see 
a person being exactly like him. He's not unrealistic. I think he's very one-dimensional, especially given that he doesn't have a real learning changing arc. He is what the liberal ideal is supposed to be. He's just the depiction. Yes, and he's nerdy as a trope, but his general way of confronting others, it's... Yeah, he's a caricature. That's not the same thing as a real person character. And I would argue that really the only person who has that is O'Neill, which is weird. <laughs> okay, point taken. All right. I would argue that the one big point left here is Raw and the final battle. Let's open that kind of worms. Yes, And it's a big one. I would like to start with Ra. We've already talked about the false gods, so just insert everything we said there here, because it's still true. We first really encounter Ra, surrounded by a harem of children. Everyone is wearing relatively intense makeup, if you regard the rest of the movie. And everyone, except for Ra, is very lightly clothed. The depiction of especially children in very light clothing and in a way sexualizing them was used by Roland Emmerich, who produced this movie with the intent to create a feeling of unease in the audience. And while he managed to do that, that has some very problematic implications. Yes. Ra as an entire figure is problematic because Ra is the textbook example of the transphobic construction of predators. Want to go into detail about that? Yes. So, starting with Ra. Ra himself has a boyish face, but long hair. He wears a corset and a long dress, somewhat resembling royalty. And he uses he-him pronouns. Ra is the only person in the Stargate movie who has a somewhat ambiguous depiction of gender. Skara does wear a crop top, so one might fight me on that, but that is the only form of gender deviation he displays. And I would argue that this feeds more into the othering of the people we meet on this planet than into disrupting gender norms or displaying gender nonconformity as something positive. Doesn't he also have long hair? Ra's hair gives me a hair conditioner advertisement kind of vibe. And I do think that the context of his uh, boyish face and the, the eyeliner also makes a difference. Whereas Skara is m more generally presented mask in his context. I think both the crop top and the long hair of Skara are othering. That's a problem snowballing, you know? Yeah. So, Ra is depicted as ambiguous. I would argue the markers given to him lean towards the feminine side. The only things that contradict that are maybe his facial features, the pronouns, and the voice. And the voice is also a can of worms because it has this robotic kind of effect put over it. Mm -hmm. So we are supposed to feel unease in Ra due to his gender expression. Because they are part of his otherness, and that's what 
should make us feel uneasy about him. Is that a way to see this? Uh, I would argue at this point of the movie, intersectionality is an important perspective because this cannot be reduced to either Orientalism or transphobia. This is a specific form of combination that re-enhances both. Yeah, right. And that is amplified by a harem of children and the hypersexualization of the general context. Not only the children are half-naked, but also the soldiers around Ra. Ra is the only fully clothed person in the room. We have the hypersexualization of everyone except for Ra, and the idea behind that is that Ra is not only a fetish, and Ra is not only to be sexualized, but Ra is also, and first and foremost, a predator. We are to see this transphobic image as prone to exert sexual violence. We are basically given the ultimate villain. And again, I would not assume that any of the creators actually intended to villainize trans people with this depiction, but they are using tropes that are very transphobic and those need to be reflected. I agree with that. I do not think that any of this was intentional by either the writers or the actors or anyone else involved in the making of this movie. But I do think it's understandable how we get to the perspective of the depiction that we get. I was talking about how I like that O'Neill is not a monolith, although we are in the beginning of the movie not supposed to empathize with him. Yes. We never get that kind of arc with Ra. Ra is the ultimate other. He is godly and powerful and strange. And that is everything he is. We never get to have any form of empathy for him because he is made to be seen as completely undeserving. The hypersexualization and the othering through, for example, the children's harem is part of that. I would argue that the general depiction of the aliens feeds into that as well, because what we see here are hypersexualized soldiers who wear masks over their faces that are at the same time highly technological and animalistic. We have a double image of danger and savagery in this both fetishized through the Western gaze. Would you make the point that it also fetishizes parts of the ancient Egyptian culture? They are wearing masks depicting the faces of ancient Egyptian gods. I do think that is part of it. Fetishization and hypersexualization is in itself a fundamental part of othering and a part of Orientalism because the other is diminished and seen as wrong, it is also ultimately forbidden. And the forbidden tends to get fetishized. Okay, I see. In the final scene, when Ra is blown to bits, we have an interesting cinematic choice. In his death scene, Ra is not depicted in his human shell, but we see his alien form shine through. I would argue that this again underlines that we are not supposed to feel anything for Ra but disdain. 
we have a very monolithic villain here. There is no acceptable part of his position. That scene was actually shot after the production of the movie had already finished. And I am curious if that has any role in this decision, but I am sure there would have been ways to make this less dehumanizing. I would also argue that this would not be as problematic as it is if Ra was in general a more nuanced character. As it is, it definitely strengthens our detachment from him. Yeah, definitely, I agree. That is a very good point in time to speak about the imperialist aspects of this movie. Given O'Neill's mission, I find it very ironic that we witness, in this case, an externalization of imperialism. The mission being... The movie antagonizes a villain who abducts humans from Earth and colonizes another planet. We are supposed to see imperialism and colonization as a massive problem, a violation of persons. But on the other hand, we do never reflect that governments just like that of the US military we are supposed to be empathetic with do similar things or have done similar things. So what we see here is an externalization of an internal problem. We pretend that the others are the bad guy from the perspective of this movie and lack the nuance to reflect on own mistakes. What we really do here is we display an imperial power, the US, as a victim. We have victimhood of Western power, which is, in my opinion, very interesting and disturbing, given that, again... The only character who is an actual person is bringing a bomb there <laughs> to kill everything possibly dangerous. Oh yeah, and then there's the fact that this bomb brought by the good white American hero soldier is saving the poor Egyptian people from their oppressor, which is obviously the only way the poor people could be freed. Exactly. We do not have any agency of Scar or Kasuf. Sorry, Skara or Kasuf, which is really 100% instigated by them themselves. They are not depicted as survivors or warriors in their own right. Also, the, the act of white saviorism in itself in this movie, in my opinion, is very off. What happens is there is a dialogue between Kasuf and Jackson. And Jackson tells Kasuf where his people are coming from. So what we have here is a white red scientist explaining a, air quotes, foreign person, their history. And that is seen as something good. We do not get any critical reflection of the problematic of history being taken away by an imperial power and then an imperial power telling you what your history is. That is instead seen as the means to empower yourself. Almost as if there was an agenda behind this. Weird. <laughs> that sounds absurd. <laughs> It was, after all, filmed from an objective viewpoint, right? <laughs> Because that is what the Western gaze is, right? Another point that never is addressed as something problematic 
is Jackson's complicity in O'Neill's mission. O'Neill is entrusted with bringing a bomb to the other side of the Stargate in order to destroy it, to ensure that nothing dangerous can exit from it. Jackson finds out about the mission at some point and, given the chance, immediately informs the other members of the military, but not the townspeople. And although there is a language barrier, Jackson eventually learns to speak the language rudimentarily and I think he could and should have warned them about the existence of that bomb. Especially considering, even if that was not part of the mission or any intention, the bomb being a nuclear one would have definitely endangered the people living there. Yes, very much so. That said, this is pretty much the end of the movie. After Ra being blown to bits, we get a goodbye scene where the military re-enters the Stargate to head home, while Jackson stays with his now wife. <laughs> I didn't talk about the hero arc at all, oh my goodness. No, go for it. This short excursus to Shauri really will only take a second because it's a cliche and you can insert it from every 1950s movie ever. So Shauri literally only exists to be a love interest. I mean, you don't need to go back to the 1950s to get to that trope. No, but for the 90s, that is uncommon in that intensity. The only woman role, and she's only for that, That happens a lot in modern movies. It's such a trope that women exist only as a reward or as the love trope to the male hero. Okay, maybe I just watch too many good movies. <laughs> Still, Stargate is behind its time on this one. Shori literally only exists as a gift to Jackson, a love plot. And a housewife. And a housewife, yeah. And another key importance stems from the hero arc she gives Jackson because he can show some badassery by reviving her exactly uh, through casual sacrilege okay uh, if you want to mention that you'll have to get into more detail about the sacrilege part okay so as pyramids were designed as holy graves for pharaohs the whole theme of making pyramids just mundane flying objects is somewhat problematic in my opinion and to open a grave or a sarcophagus is deeply disrespectful towards the dead this is not what these items are used for in the movie it is basically a reviving chamber still i believe the usage of this Sacred imagery is somewhat problematic, and Shauri is revived by Jackson through basically laying her into another's grave, which I find quite well. <laughs> okay, yeah, thank you. I think there's another interesting point to make about the relationship between Jackson and Shauri, because in the beginning, Jackson is very hesitant to involve himself with her because she is forced into this relationship and he's the heroic white guy who does not want her to be forced upon him. And then in the end, when he develops feelings for her, this whole thing just gets thrown out of the picture. And, It disappears. And they have a quote-unquote consensual relationship without there being any question whether Shauri is in this position deliberately. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, that is because, again, it's a white savior. We have the hero arc. We have the gentleman arc. We are supposed to consider Jackson as the knight in shining armor. And why would Chowry decline that? Again, also a bit of heteronormativity. First, we had the townspeople who just assumed that Jackson would be hetero because hetero was also their cultural norm. And again, we have that with Shaori as well, only that her perspective is not only disregarded when it comes to sexuality, but constant in general. Yay for happy endings. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a ride. So what's your general thought on the script? Wow, that's difficult to answer. Make it quick. I like some communicational aspects. Okay, so you are looking for something positive to say about the script. Maybe. Uh, which, is, which is funny to me, because the actors had a hard time finding something positive about it as well. Um, <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are quite a few anecdotes about the movie uh, having a slow start because they couldn't find anybody to act those roles because they had a hard time... Um, Wow. Getting the people to agree to play those roles. Just, wow. <laughs> Let me start with James Spader, who displayed Dr. Daniel Jackson. He hated the script. Interesting. He has one of the more acceptable roles. I was really fascinated seeing that with his knowledge, because basically he said acting is a job for him, and uh, he needed to do this job to make a living. Fair. Which is really a fair point. And basically he said, script sucks, but it will be just one more paycheck. And when he finally met with Roland Emmerich, he was inspired by the director's passion for the project. And he decided to make the movie because he felt the energy and craziness of Roland Emmerich. And he thought this energy might translate into the movie. So he was at least somewhat intrigued. Kurt Russell was basically also in it for the money. Jay Davidson, uh, he's the guy who plays Ra. He only did one movie before that, The Crying Game from 1992. He originally had said that he wouldn't want to make any movies after that. He really didn't like the attention. But he didn't just want to turn the offer down, so he just made the demand of $1 million, dollars, uh, which he simply didn't expect them to meet. But they... Cool move. <laughs> they accepted, so he appeared. <laughs> We talked a lot about the transphobia of the depiction of Raw, and I do not want to play that down in any way. The point I'm going to make has nothing to do with this. But I do want to compliment the casting choice of um, Jay Davidson because he had been out as homosexual for quite a while then. While that should not be something that's worth mentioning, the deliberate employment of gay actors and actresses in Hollywood is something that is rare now and was even more rare in the 90s. And I am glad they were willing to pay him a fair salary and that they were employing an openly gay actor in the first place. I agree with that. But yeah, I also agree that that does not change anything about the problematic depiction of this villain. And I would argue that generally increasing representation in staff members is important, but it is not a guarantee, just as intentions are not a guarantee for a good and decent outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about the opinions the cast had on the script. They produced the movie and then they made a test screening. That's common procedure. So they got a bunch of people in and showed them the movie after it had been produced. Everybody hated it. <laughs> Hang on. 
That's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine that's not what generally happens at test screenings. Okay, they hated it. The amount of positive reviews they got were in the 30s percent, which is nothing. So the executive producer, Mario Casa, saw those horrible reactions and thought about the movie and the problem and uh, why uh, the reviews might be so bad. And then he realized, hang on, the plot doesn't make any sense. As the people of the foreign planet were not subtitled, neither was Ra or any of the other figures. So there really wasn't any explanation for how the things that were going on were connected. I mean, you gotta admit that would be a very consistent choice. <laughs> consistent, but not making any sense. But yeah, definitely not helpful to the narrative. He decided to just give subtitles to Ra and not only translating what he said, basically he gave him lines that connected the plot of the movie. <laughs> Now I am... Wondering, like, did the movie have a plot before the, those subtitles were made? Or was it just, yeah, we're going to make those pictures and then we're going to figure this out afterwards or the audience is going to make their guesses. And I would also add, I mean, I haven't thought about this before, but it is also kind of problematic that the only person who is not part of our military scientific Western gaze team who gets an active voice we can understand is Ra. With the exception of one scene where we see Skara and his friends talking without somebody of the team being present. And therefore, then they are subtitled. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, well, they added the subtitles, they made another test screening, and that was very successful. After that, the movie became a 1994 surprise hit. In hindsight, that's kind of weird. It really is. Not everybody agreed that it was good. There is a American film critique. He's also a film historian and a journalist. His name is Roger Joseph Ebert. He famously has a list of most hated films. Guess which movie made it on there? <laughs> that is a questionable award to get. Yeah, that's it with my facts about the movie. Uh, one thing is left that we haven't talked about, and that's the amazing score. The amazing score? The, the music. Oh, now I get it. Well, yeah, I have to admit, um, I do like the background music of the movie. I also like the silences. Like, this movie was good at creating ambience. Gotta give it that. And for me, the whole style of music they used is so nostalgic. It's such a prime example for how film music was generally used in the 90s and how it still is when it's a really epic movie. It's basically close to how Hans Zimmer would work and other great composers. But actually, this was only the second feature-length movie David Arnold ever did. And the producers were a bit scared when they were hiring him because he was so in inexperienced. But I think they definitely made the right choice here. I agree. I Cannot speak for the Hans Zimmer simile, but it was good. Yeah, that's the movie. Okay, I gotta say, it is a bit scary to start with this, both with you, Lils, and with you, the listeners, because the series is somewhat different from the film, luckily. Punk's scared we're gonna bail on him. <laughs> um, yeah, basically. <laughs> no, I know that Lils is gonna stay for a while, but I hope you will too, and I... I expect the next episodes to be not as long as this one because we are not dealing with the whole movie. And I think the show is doing a better job handling these things. Of course, there are problems there as well and we will tackle them. But 
if my memory serves me right, Liz will enjoy the show a lot more than they did the movie. I am very intrigued to see how much of that is nostalgia and how much of it is actual differences in between the movie and the series. I, for my part, actually enjoyed this experience so far. I know I am not pulling my punches and I can see that I will sound harsh. And I am. I do demand to be able to criticize this fiercely, but I actually enjoy this kind of analysis. So either way, it's a win for me. Either the series gets better and then it is in general a better viewing experience, or it remains the same and I can ramble on. It was very nice of you to join us. I am so tired right now. I agree. We totally did not regard any time limits on this. Okay, so we are both very new to podcasting. This is the first episode of anything we ever recorded. And that's why we still have a lot to learn. Hi, Editing Punk here. And joined... By Editing Lils, <laughs> who would have thought they would exist. Nobody is more surprised than we are to find that Even now, right at the beginning of our journey, we are joined by some lovely people who support us on Patreon already. So, a shout out and a huge thank you go to Nina, Cecilia and Madeta. It really means a lot to us. Thank you guys so, so much for your support. I can't wait to talk to you on the Discord about the first episode and on your thoughts on the movie. We have rambled for four hours now. That's like three times the movie. <laughs> almost um i am going to try to cut this down to something comprehensible and i hope you enjoyed listening to us anyway we are going to hear each other again next sunday when we talk about stargate commando sg1 episodes one and two goodbye strangers <laughs>